Hi, everyone. Welcome to Create Canvas, a podcast about the processing education community. I'm your host, Sabra Khan, the Education Community Director of Processing Foundation. The Create Canvas podcast is focused on all things education within the processing community. We'll be talking to educators, teaching at the intersection of art, science, and technology. In this episode, I talk with Sarah Hendren, an artist, designer, writer, and professor at Olin College of Engineering. She is the author of What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World, published by Riverhead Penguin Random House. You'll find this and other episodes on the Create Canvas SoundCloud and wherever you download podcasts. By the way, these interviews are part of the education portal of processingfoundation.org. The portal will have education materials and resources available for free. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Create Canvas. Today, I'm here with Sarah Hendren. She's an artist, design researcher, writer, professor at Olin College of Engineering. She's the author of What Can a Body Do? How We Meet the Built World, published by Penguin Random House on August 18, 2020. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to start with you is part of this work that you're doing involves thinking about design differently and sort of responding to different needs. I wonder if you could talk about why we often focus on certain areas and perhaps not other areas. Is there a way to make sure we're looking at design and innovation broadly so it isn't just sort of focused on people who are at the center of of a built world? Yeah, I mean, well, there are a couple of ways to think about that. I mean, one is that a lot of times, perhaps because people think in terms of mass manufacturing, they think, well, the only things that matter are the things that will matter at a numerical scale. And so then maybe they turn their attention on the middling mainstream and think of that place as a place to make quote unquote impact. I mean, in the history of design, human-centered design, of course, there's actually been a whole tradition of looking not at the middling mainstream, but actually looking at the so-called margins of experience, precisely because there's often insight in the margins that tells us something deep about being human that often, you know, is to the benefit of many people. So in that tradition, specifically in my research area and disability, often people think of this as universal design. So to tell a couple of the famous stories in this that people may or may not know, the OXO good grips, those kitchen tools that have that chunky rubber handle on your vegetable peeler, perhaps, or your Mm -hmm. can opener, that ergonomic handle. And it's really quite elegantly done the way the, the kind of grip and squeeze of that. And there are these little fins etched on the side that tell you right where to put your thumb and where to press down. And those were actually designed from the an insight gained from the condition of arthritis. So Betsy Farber, who was on vacation with her husband, Sam Farber, was in a rental house somewhere in Europe and was sort of complaining about like the, the, the sort of old school vegetable peelers and like, why can't I use this? Shouldn't there be a better mousetrap, you know, in the form of this kitchen tool? And um, Liz Jackson actually told this story in the New York Times opinion section. It's a great little vignette of how that happened. And Sam Farber, her husband, was a retired entrepreneur and came out of retirement. They worked together with Smart Design to overhaul kitchen tools as we know them. So now, since those three decades ago or whenever it was, the Good Grips line has become a more ergonomic kitchen tool 
that's more comfortable actually for everyone. Most people who use them, it's been a sensation. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a tool that does scale, you know, in, in mass manufacturing in that industrial sense. In other words, you can make its parts efficiently in a factory and therefore they arrive at the big box store for under $10. And that's the kind of thing that you want to work at that kind of scale. Curb cuts is another one in the, in the built environment. So that just the, mm-hmm. the ramp that is now cut into the curb at the corner where the sidewalk meets the street and then back up again, you curb cuts were won by legal mandate of the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, not that long ago. Mm-hmm. People point to, to curb cuts as a universal design because it was argued for in the interest of wheelchair users to have free passage through the built environment. But of course, if you wheel luggage through the built environment, if you push a stroller, a big double stroller like I did for years through the built environment, if you are temporarily on crutches, you know, wheeling a bike through the city streets, you also participate in those politics in a way that people think of as universalizing, right? So, mm-hmm. and a lot of times people think that that's the whole story of design and disability, that it's universal design and that's the only place um, that we should be looking, that only things matter where there's insight and disability that can affect all of us. But of course, the Americans with Disabilities Act was an anti-discrimination law because it, yeah. it, it named the, the idea that not only is discrimination based on um, not giving people chances because they're thought to be less able, but also that the very built environment itself has discriminatory features in it. If you cannot get down the street, if you can't get onto the sidewalk, into the building, you cannot be then in the public sphere. You cannot get to the transportation, to your workplace, to the voting booth, right? So that's really interesting when you think about it, that discrimination may be built in then to the built environment. So it's not just, in other words, the responsibility of people working in the logic of markets and industry and scaled manufacturing. It's also meant to be a legal guarantee. So so people who are designers can think in a civic way about what is the right thing to do. Well, it's if you want to build a democracy, you need to make it work for everyone. So some of those things arrive to us in the form of markets at the big box store. Some of them are the work of laboratories and classrooms mm-hmm. at engineering schools. Some of them are the work of urban planners working at the behest of cities and municipalities. There are lots of roles for design to take a look at the margins of experience, including the bodiedness of our own lives, and to think about how to make the built world do a little bit more flexing and bending and elasticizing its own structures to make it friendlier for us. I mean, I think a lot of people listening will you know, have plenty of experience turning their own bodies into a pretzel to try to meet the built world, you know, to try to make it work in this chair on the bus to try to, Mm -hmm. you know, sidle up to somebody and grab a scrap of pole in the subway. We, we all turn ourselves into adaptive, you know, creatures in the built environment, but history shows that the built environment can also move a little toward us too. And so each of us, no matter our body, what we learn when we look at these lessons in all their places is to say, okay, when and if my body changes, and we know that it does, we know that bodies come with needs, right? Full stop. Then what is the next right question that I'll ask? Will I bring my body to the world and and adapt in this way? And I tell lots of stories of people who do that uh, in the book, but also can I ask the built environment to move toward me? And what what are the resources I would draw on to do so? Yeah. Sounds like, you know, there may be quite a bit of journey to do, especially if you know at engineering school to think about this stuff what's it like for uh, someone new to these ideas entering your class yeah i mean i mean that is that is such a great question because of course people listening will not not be surprised to hear that 
engineers are really quite eager to dive into what's been known as rehabilitation engineering. That's a World War II phenomenon of, you know, of the, the realm of prosthetics and kind of big government funds and DARPA research and so on um, toward prosthetic limbs. I mean, this is a real draw for engineers. They go into engineering because it's not bench science, you know, it is applied mm-hmm. technology. It's where technology meets people. So it's not hard to get people interested in the idea of, for instance, replacement parts in the form of prosthetic limbs or in better software for text-to-speech for blind readers of their email or something. And my students tend to come to me with that very eagerness. But the role then for me is to actually do a very subtle thing, which is to say, okay, young person, take all of that energy and that will to be on the helper end, right? The helper end that provides the technology. Take that, but dial back a little bit to your own experience and actually locate your own body and your own experience in the receiving of help as well. Yeah. Right. So and and for me that's critical. In other words, to try to say to students what disabled people have said for a long time, which is that all technology is assistive technology. That is to say, mm-hmm. what is technology doing if not giving us help? So it's a redundancy to say, over here in rehab engineering, we're going to make this special kind of technology, which is assistive in nature, right? As though it's for a special subset of people who are not fully, fully human. They are a kind of subset who actually need the help. No, no. Take a look at your smartphone, the utensils with which you ate your lunch, the glasses or the contacts that you wear every day, the orthotic shoe on one side that's helping you, you know, with a more comfortable gait and call that all technology. Find yourself in that big plane of existence, which is just an extended body with stuff that has needs. That to me is a very productive place to start building stuff together because it means that my students don't get that kind of heroic tech savior complex mm-hmm. that like, oh, I'm on the bestowing end of this thing that's going to rescue this poor person's body, right? We dial way back from that and say, no, this is the most fascinating human experience possible, right? What is the great humanist refrain, right? That's in the humanities where I come from. One of the great humanist refrains is nothing human is alien to me. In other words, the insight is to say, any human experience, I can find some recognition in. I can do the perceptive work to see myself in it, to see my connection to it. Okay, now we're getting to some good questions. So when Amanda, who is a little person who has a form of dwarfism, came to my classroom asking for a lectern at her scale, you can imagine how the lecterns of the world are not to her scale. Or when my friend Alice Shepard came to my classroom, a wheelchair dancer who wanted a ramp, not for getting into a building, but a ramp for stage. That's just rearranging all our categories at once, right? What What is the engineering and who is the engineer and who's getting and receiving the help mm-hmm. and what is the kind of help that's being asked for? And so to me, there's nothing better than that encounter in the classroom, but it's not a kind of bleeding heart, you know, engineers to save lives kind of deal. Yeah, there's a part of being human and humble there. I wonder it also must impact their identity. Some folks, you know, find it easy to sort of connect through their own feelings of marginalization or or having to bend. And folks just haven't practiced that muscle. I wonder if, even if they have been, you know, marginalized, they just have not had the language to think about it or put it to words. Do you do things there in those moments to, to help them find themselves? 
I'm sure often when they meet a disabled person, the differences have become very yeah. clear and stark. Yeah. Where, how do they draw connections back in? Yeah. One of the best things that I've done in the classroom, which was the idea of Alex Truesdell, who's the now retired head of the Adaptive Design Association in New York City, which is a storefront in Manhattan and appears in the chair chapter in my book. So the Adaptive Design Association builds radically bespoke, customized furniture, um, mostly out of triple wall cardboard and other low-tech tools um, and materials for kids with disabilities all over New York City. And it's a fascinating, absolutely ingenious practice. And we can talk more about that if you'd like to. But Alex came to my classroom and introduced my students to triple wall cardboard, to its incredibly robust qualities, um, to you know reframing their idea of what high tech and low tech really is. But the thing that she launched in my classroom that then I repeated several times after was to actually have the students go back to their dorm rooms or their kind of workspaces and think, what's a fitting, what's an adaptation that I can build out of cardboard or some similarly modest material that actually would bridge a misfit between my own body and the world. So people who don't think of themselves as disabled, of course, I have students with disabilities and accommodations of various kinds, but a lot of them are invisible disabilities. But I had students who, for instance, were quite a bit shorter than average. They were not little people or have dwarfism, but they were, you know, quite a bit shorter than the average desk, for instance, is scaled for. So I had a student who built for the exercise ball that she would sit on instead of a regular chair, she built a cardboard stand that raised it up even more. So now she was able to kind of meet the the scale of the desk at a, at a more comfortable stature. Could she have kind of made it, you know, through the year without it? She could. But mm. that moment, right, where she went and built something for herself was the moment for her to turn her attention to her own body and to the universality of misfitting. And so that puts her in a much better frame of mind to then turn her attention to somebody else. For instance, Amanda or that same student, Grace was her name, who built the exercise ball stand, went on to work with a man named Chris with one arm on an extension for rock climbing. But she had a much better sense that she was involved in these human stakes too. And that's the moment where discovery, you know, can really happen, where we see our our own lives and those connections And then we see the strangeness, perhaps, of disability as a little bit less strange Mm -hmm. and and as as both an urgent matter politically, but also a creative matter, you know, to say, whoa, here's this person doing like all of us are doing this incredible adapting to the world all the time. Where can we watch it happen and kind of slow down the tape and say, what's the role for the tool or the technique and where it might find its good life? Yeah, I think about that I'm from Bangladesh, and I think about the innovation that you know people at the margins have to practice to sort of get by, and how we often don't pay attention to those things. Yeah, does does suffering sort of become a virtue in some places? And do you think about that as a design thing? Of I'm trying to phrase this correctly, but often people look very innovative when they're dealing with oppression, basically some yeah. something that really just be, and they're sort of gracefully and and you know intellectually and physically overcoming it, but the reality is still a problem. And in one sense, design might fix that moment, but ultimately, as you alluded to with the ADA, it's, it's a, it's kind of a political thing. Yeah. Is there a part where your students are ready for that jump or is that part of your classes and thinking about that? Yeah. Well, you've said so much there. I mean, one is, you know, we look for instance at the Jaipur foot in that's a mm-hmm. phenomenon of multiple cities in India originated in Jaipur and, and the Jaipur foot for people who don't know is a lower limb prosthesis 
that's made in a super elegant way out of high performance plastics and made for about $50 per limb, but distributed for free. And I do try to show students the social and political context into which the Jaipur foot enters and how many folks from rich Western countries don't think of that as technological innovation. They might think of that as kind of good enough or appropriate technology for a condition where poverty is more widespread. But my invitation there is to say, let's look at all those categories, right? And what are all the conditions that give rise to this incredible technology? So that is one way of trying to think about our hierarchies of high and low tech and all the messed up ways that we in rich Western contexts, privilege a kind of certain kind of innovation that's born of labs and professional expertise. So that has to do with economies and class and so on. We can get into more of that if you'd like to. But the other thing that you're naming is something that in disability studies is called super cripping, Mm. which is to say there's a fairly rigid set of stories to which non-disabled people would like disability to conform in order to be acceptable. In other words, the overcomer story that you hinted at where we would like to have a nice ending to a story, even if it's if it's by technology or some other insight where people say, I am no longer defined by my disability. I have overcome it by, let's say, athletic prowess at the Paralympics, right? Or by being, mm-hmm. in the case of Down syndrome, a lot of people want to say, oh, well, this person is an enlightened being and happier than the rest of us and therefore exists to teach the rest of us. All of that's a really, you know, that's a deflection from letting people be actually fully human, right? Like all of that is a way for non-disabled people to say, that's a separate experience over there. It is for me to be inspired by, it is for me to be grateful for my life, right? It's a way still of distancing ourselves from the condition of disability. I often say that my classroom is tries to be like a critical theory seminar housed and smashed into a design build studio, right? <laughs> which, is hard, which is hard to do. I mean, but that's yeah. that's the work of kind of, you know, science and technology studies is often the, the seminar where you write the papers and you're quite critical of the role of technology and the overclaims and the hype that it that it makes for itself. But rarely do you see some of that critical discourse enter into the the rough and ready, you know, like, okay, what are we going to patch together and make together? And can we make something that's got those questions involved in it? So, you know, like in the case of Amanda, we ended up building a lectern with her, you know, that was a collapsible portable lectern for short stature that she could take with her when she traveled. And to me, that was a way of having an engineering challenge that had very mechanical requirements of it. I mean, it was a very engineering-y problem, problem, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. but it had a question that didn't end with the result. In other words, anytime Amanda walks into the room and unfolds that lectern, she is enacting a question in the technology, which is to say that yeah. that doesn't conform to that super crypt story or that overcomer story or that noble suffering story. Instead, it says, I'm here with my gear at my scale. Mm-hmm. And every every time I use this, I, I point in kind of neon with big arrows to the standardized dimensions of the world. And I just let the audience live with that dissonance a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And and I hope that what that does is try to point to the unfinished work of the ADA, for example. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the unemployment statistics, even in this country, with all its riches and resources, the unemployment statistics for disabled people is still really high, right? And, and mm-hmm. so I, I do want students and I want readers to live with the unfinished dream and the very real limitations of designed anything. You know, so at the mm-hmm. end of the book, I get into 
the, the end chapter is called clock, not because of, it's about a physical clock, but it's about design for slowness in time. There is no substitute for politics yeah, that, that design or technology will touch. So I guess the challenge to all of us teachers is to say when and where technology might do the reparative work, either through culture and symbols and the way that, that, that those operate, or through very modest, very handy garden variety problem solving in the engineering way. Mm-hmm. But also to say, what are the limits you know, that, that any built thing is going to bump up against? And now we're in the realm of policy, governance, economics, and more. And so it's, it's hard to, to get those things right. I mean, wh- where does this come up for you in the classroom? Oh, wow. I, I didn't think you were going to ask me a question. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just that, you know, one thing image that I'm sticking with is often, you know, you learn about something at the assembly and, that you know, someone from that community is there present and then like everyone claps and wants to move on, but they're still there packing up all their stuff and the difficulty of their reality is yeah. still there. It doesn't have this very pat like, yay, we won that, you know, battle. And yeah how to leave people with that, that discomfort and that, that, that crisis, this could, you know, our failures for disabled people continue yeah. daily. And, and my hope, my hope is right. That, that again, some of those, that's why I, it's so important to me not to have folks. I don't want students to be animated by this sense that the, the need is so urgent. They need to wake up every day and not forget those disabled people. What I want for them to st- is to say, I find myself in a body that has needs for assistance in all kinds of forms. And over my lifespan, those needs will wax and wane and change in lots of ways. And I will be connected in an ecology of care to young children or to my elder parents or whatever, but that I live in that world too. Mm -hmm. That's where you say, so even if that person is packing up their bags at the end and where you're saying there's real difficulties, you recognize it as human, right? And that you Mm -hmm. say, you also you live on that same planet. And so then you, you do genuinely wake up and say, I want a world in which help and needfulness and assistance is not only natural, but can be a, a dignified form of a life, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's to me where you get the, the real sustainable change, but also the wonder. And I'm not sure, I think sometimes there's been a lot of criticality about hackathon approaches to disability stuff because it does frame it in this kind of like, oh, well, if you just get enough you know, energetic people in the room for a concentrated amount of time, like we can just whip this thing out, right? As mm-hmm. though any misfit condition is reducible to a, a kind of mechanical fix. So I do think, you know, one should be wary of some of the frames of those things, but the wonder of a sustained engagement and building something together, especially something that comes from someone's wishes, as in Amanda's case or in Alice's case, in addition to their needs. I do think that's Sarah's kind of operative theory of change, at least, is that when our act, when our wonder is activated mm-hmm. and when our sense of connection is activated, you don't have to think of this kind of like, oh, those poor people out there, let me go and sustain my energy to save them. No, if it comes from you, from the, that real place of finding your own body in that same interaction, then you don't have, you don't have to fake it. You, you know it because you know it in your bones. Yeah, I can definitely see that as, as, such a wonderful way to both always know what to do because I think, you know, I think we have a sense of when people are being treated like a human and and when you're being treated like a human. And I think that barometer, you know, is very trustworthy. So I think it helps in this process. And reflecting back to your own life, I mean, I'm thinking about 
when are moments where I've felt most disabled? They're often probably moments I've felt most humiliated or most sort of angry at the world. It also sort of makes it the hardest to talk about because mm. I, you know, saw myself reduced to something that I think I'm above or beyond. And yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You know, like my, I have two little kids and I, everyone says their life is so great, but them not being able to talk and seeing a world of talking around them is I, I know is very difficult and painful for them. Yeah. And and not to like, you know, just infantilize them. We have another layer of assistive technology with voice and a lot more things coming on. What's your sense of the role that's playing in both how we feel more able and how we relate to disabled people. Yeah. And let me just, if I can just pick up on that one thread that you were talking about, about, you know, experiences in your own life. And I do think that there are people who there's, there's some really revealing evidence, right. Of when we say, Oh, that's when I felt the most shame. I mean, I think that internalized sense that the moments where we needed help and assistance were associated with shame. Like that's a, that's a really revealing moment of understanding how culture has shaped our ideas about ability and disability. I mean, I guess I'm just thinking about, you know, members of my own extended family who would rather, you know, not visit the museum than visit the museum with the use of a wheelchair, right? Even they were, they were semi-ambulatory, but they were not able to walk or stand for long periods. But instead of going and using a wheelchair and the association with shame and stigma, they would rather sit that out. And these are people who are related to me who've been, you know, I've been working in disability design for, you know, and with my son with Down syndrome, like it's so interesting how, or you see the resistance among older adults to take up hearing aids, for example, whereas glasses mm-hmm. are, you know, utterly thought of as a very normal extension of an assistive technology. Hearing aids carry this kind of stigma of needfulness about them that people resist because they knock at our sense of being independent in a narrowly defined way, right? That our independence hinges on doing things for ourselves, by ourselves, mm-hmm. rather than seeing that our a more capacious, you know, broad, encompassing notion of independence could include help in it. Mm-hmm. That our self-determination and our agency could also include the the forms of assistance, medical assistance, technological assistance, you know, personal assistance and otherwise. But th- but I'm glad that you admitted that there was a kind of shame like register to that because I think a lot of people don't talk about that, right? And that and that's where as much as they want to say, oh yes, disability is natural and normal and part of human diversity, it still carries with it those, you know, those kind of markers. So can you just say again then the segue to assistive technology once more? Yeah. And thank you for that. Um and also not to keep adding, but you know, I think a lot of the discourse on toxic masculinity sort of hovers around that same place of sort of mm. unwilling to sort of unearth that shame and fear just so they can, you know, be healthier and, yeah. uh, you know, put on a mask or whatever is needed to not, you know, uh, that's right. To face these calamities. That's right. And just that, I mean, cause I think it's so interesting and to talk about feminist philosophers have given us this idea of the derivative dependence that comes to any parent, right? So we talk about our children as dependents with a TS in mm-hmm. the end, but I think too little, we really realize how the minute you like the kind of political s- change that happens when you become a parent is that you, the derivative dependence that accrues to you, right? You are now dependent on the state or some other community mm-hmm. environment for the childcare that you're going to need in order to perform your job. You now have to materially keep alive these human beings and you can't do it alone. I mean, fundamentally you can't. And when your child is sick, you cannot go to work. Like the dependence that that, that the state of dependence that that, that brings to you. And I think 
yeah, I think in a lot of sort of the masculinity is kind of the polarity opposite end of that, of this kind of like repulsion about dependence of any kind. If we could reframe dependence and assistance as a natural part of our lives, I think we'd be a lot better off. There is a certain level of, you know, quote unquote, assistive technology that has found its way very deeply into our lives and even more with, you know, ubiquitous internet access. Where do you see that playing out? And is that doing the universal thing that you talked about, universal design thing where it's great for everyone or is it must be much more complicated? I mean, it is complicated, but it's it is it's fun to note it. You know, I think a lot of people don't know, realize that closed captioning, for instance, came to us by the long legal fight of deaf watchers of television who said like, you know, they wanted closed captioning not to be like an extra little box that you would plug into your TV, but built into the every stock, you know, manufacturer of all TVs themselves. And there was a lot of pushback from the industry who said it's going to be too expensive, but at scale, it's like infinitesimal, it's impossible to calculate. And I think Mm -hmm. people forget how useful captions have become and how much we've come to rely on them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even on a social media feed, they, they become a kind of pull that grabs you on an autoplay video, for instance, but that you can also watch that autoplay video on silent if your kids are in the next room trying to get to sleep, or if you're in a public place and, you know, don't want to disturb others with the sound, or you're watching, you know, the game across the restaurant and, and so on. So closed captioning is a, a one kind of electronic technology that people forget is disability tech that has arrived in the mainstream. But yeah, I mean, and it's impossible to put a value on some of the out of the box accessibility features of the iPhone, much as I hate to sort of glorify Apple, they don't need it from me, but it is quite remarkable among my disabled friends to see the Mm. way that speech to text has come along, for instance. So you know, like my father uses speech to text exclusively. He is a seeing person, but just the sheer typing for him, which has just never been natural and never part of his work, is almost impossible. So he's using speech to text all the time. And I know an increasing number of people who do so. And, you know, I, I think when the iPad came out, people forget this, but the iPad in the tech community kind of got poo-pooed for being this kind of passive technology, the touchscreen interface. People sort of said about mm-hmm. it in a certain stratum of the tech community, people said, oh, well, this is for magazine readers who are going to consume, you know, content only, and they'll never really mm. make content. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, nobody was critical enough about like, well, there's nothing natural about a mm. mouse and a cursor. Like, think about how abstract mm-hmm. that is, the idea of moving a mouse off to the side that then corresponds to this, the 2D flat screen environment and the button and everything that it's meant to do. Well, I have in the book a story about a man with ALS who designed a whole residence for himself and other people with ALS and MS. And I'm telling you, an iPad with a touchscreen interface that you can manipulate with your fingers, but also with a soft-ended stick that you hold in your Mm. mouth. I mean, I would Mm. call that nothing short of liberatory technology, Sabra. And I am not a tech hype kind of person, but that is remarkable. The touchscreen interface, the immediacy of it, to say nothing of its use for kids on the autism spectrum, my own son with Down mm-hmm. syndrome, the logic, right? The logic of the touchscreen. I touch this mm-hmm. thing, I drag it here, right? All of that incredible sophistication has done a huge amount for us in the digital space. And it's it's impossible to overstate it. So maybe you're hearing a kind of in-betweener disposition that I have, right? Because I'm mm. I am critical of the kind of tech saviorism and the idea that tech will somehow solve what are actually political challenges. And yet, nonetheless, the market does deliver some things that build bridges between bodies and worlds that have been absolutely revelatory. So Mm -hmm. I I find myself trying to 
seek ever more specific and disciplined languages to keep characterizing when and where and how and for whom and at what scale and high tech or low tech and for what wishes and so on. I just want, I want all of us to have a rich vocabulary for this stuff. Yeah. And I was just saying, you know, in the absence of movement on, on the disability front, but really the ADA is the exception. It, it, it's yeah. always been lack of action on the disability front and, yeah. and ADA is sort of a very remarkable thing that happened and, and it took, you know, a generation of folks to enforce it. Yeah. It's also a law that arrives in a culture deeply organized around individualism too, Sabra. I mean, we have to yeah. sort of say that, right? That it is really important that curb cuts and the slope is calculated for a curb cut that presumes a wheelchair user on their own, right? Not being pushed oh. through the built environment. So it, it needs to be traversable in a reasonable way by someone either pushing wheels or using a motorized wheelchair, but you have to presume the absence of a person who would help. And so good, right? Rightly so. But that peak individualism is also why, you know, elder care in our country is really in a still in a, in a sorry state overall. Whereas in other parts of the world, it would be unthinkable that older adults would be you know, warehoused and kind of managed in the older parts of their lives, or that they wouldn't be part of an ecology of care in a context where individualism is not the kind of reigning paradigm of how people live their lives. That, that in, the, in other words, other cultures presume that the family structure and indeed the, the, the extended family structure is the normative way in which we live our lives. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, comes with compromises too about who the caregiving falls to and, mm-hmm. and the, the, the obligation that, that that arises. I mean, it's deeply complicated. And Atul Gawande has, opens his book, Being Mortal, with a really fascinating discussion of this very thing, of being you know the son of immigrants from India with extended families still in India who thought very deeply about his grandfather who lived to be, I want to say 110. I mean, really had a very long life and all of the decisions about care and family governance and so on that happened in those complicated dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. You can almost imagine in a society that sort of accepts individualism to its max and capitalism to its max, you also need this sort of assistive technology because you're sort of left on your own devices. That's right. But you need legal guarantees. And also, it leaves aside the question of poking at that individualism itself, right? At the presumptions yeah. of it and the trade offs of it, you know, without romanticizing either. It's just really interesting. It has to do with its political philosophy, you know, at its core. Like, what is the node of a person? And where does that person start and stop? And what do we owe each other? And in which material goods and so on? It's really interesting. Yeah, but I'm, I'm glad you noted. Yeah, the, the idea that like families are superior, or that there is an oppression and, and uh, inequality within a family. I mean, I'm sure yeah. everyone knows that, but yeah. I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of people choose individualism because family is a you know source of oppression or marginalization for them. That's exactly right, and that's what Gawandi really grapples with. You know, like his parents were determined to leave that culture, and yet they yeah. understood the virtues of, of the family structure that they came from. So it was, it's very much a, like, let's be as specific as possible, right? Without making mm-hmm. another out of, of each other. We've covered so much ground and, and so much big picture stuff. I'm wondering, and, you know, our audience is a, a motley crew of educators doing all kinds of things. Yeah. I wonder if there's something you want to encourage them or offer them to do or try in their classroom that helps along this way. And yeah. it's something we'd like to feature on our website. So it'd yeah. be good to talk about it before we they look at it. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things you could do with almost any age of, 
of child, and I've presented this subject to my own kids' classrooms as young as fifth grade, is to help kids think about not just assistance, but adaptation. So if you want to launch, for instance, a STEM exploration of design and disability, you might help kids think about the difference between purely assistance and adaptation. And by by that, I mean, it's a really simple way to help kids understand that if they're going to work with somebody, for instance, in their classroom who is disabled, they could think about the things that that person is doing with their body as deeply adaptive already. So everything that that person is doing with their gear is adaptive. It's not just that this person needs special help. And so we're going to come along and do more special helping with them. It's that they're already doing the work that you also are doing, young person, which is adapting every single day. We know this from the science. It is it is the quality of our entire lives to be deeply plastic and adaptive in any of our environments. And so if you can help students shift their thinking to adaptive technology, not as a kind of like, you know, making one word a bad word to say, but just pointing out to them the difference between saying, oh, we're going to build some assistive technology today and then saying, oh, no, we're going to explore the big realm of adaptive technology. What's the technology that's adaptive for you, young person? Okay, where might we come alongside someone else and think about an adaptive technology that they might be wanting? And aren't we all going to look at the end and say, where is our attention? Is it on the tech? No, no, it's on the body. It's on the person, right? It's on that the miracle of that adaptation. And if we see it as miraculous, then we see ourselves in it. Our wonder is engaged. And then, yes, the tool comes along. It might be very clever. It might be just the right thing at the right time. But it's never the protagonist. It, always, always, it's people. It's people at the center. So I think there are ways to show students that stuff that doesn't do the gee whiz, you know, what a disruption and what an amazing feat of engineering, but to say, look at these people in their lives with their stuff intact and let's let's ask them their name and what they like to do and let's focus on kind of the the dimensionality of their lives not just mm-hmm. on their the cleverness of their gear yeah and doing that at a young age can be so powerful yeah. such an exciting and healthy way to look at the world and to guide your yeah. learning yeah and there's a wonderful film on the adaptive design at adaptivedesign.org That's the storefront that I mentioned to you that makes the cardboard furniture. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful short film that would be great for a lot of different ages. And it does this work in lots of ways by showing a protagonist working together to kind of adapt her gear. And I think that would be a great prompt for folks if they're looking for kind of like what's a to start to kick off a module. That's a great one. COVID and and social distancing has really, you know, wrecked havoc on a lot of things, especially, you know, those guarantees of, of publicness and being able to be in public and yeah. um, thinking about all the kids that have accommodations that they're not getting them. Yeah. I'm wondering if you want to share any of your experience on that side and also how you're thinking about moving ahead in this challenging world. And then how do we keep the bodies of those other people that we don't see much anymore in our heads? Yeah. Well, I mean, Alice Wong, who just released an edited book of her own called Disability Visibility, has said, and I think this is so right, that that disabled people are actually kind of way out in front on this stuff with COVID. In other words, she calls them disabled people like herself, modern day oracles. And so she says like, look, we've been asking for a long time for things like telehealth, like much more strong telehealth Mm -hmm. practices, because 
as people who may be immunocompromised or for whom getting out the door for any little doctor visit is quite onerous, we've been asking for that, for flexibility on that for a long time. Same thing with work from home options, right? That that, that up till mm-hmm. now have seemed like, well, gosh, we sure would love to, but we just can't quite afford that accommodation. And look, oh my goodness, it turns out we can. It turns out that the, mm-hmm. the shifting shapes of the world are able to be made more malleable and more mutable than we, than we often think. So there's a really interesting way in which disabled people are again, a a resource out in front. And if we ask them like, what are the other kinds of ways that you've done workarounds, we might learn quite a lot. And I do think we're seeing just in kind of the innovative ways that people have had to figure out new service designs for shopping, for instance, you know, protected elders only shopping hours. I mean, that just seems like a good idea, Mm -hmm. you know, in deep winter to do anyway, right. If we're just talking about making our structures and, and, folks forget that services are also designed, right? So, so that's another realm mm-hmm. of thinking, how do we, how do we rearrange the constituent parts in a way that's more human and humane? I mean, one of my local bookstores has not just elders only shopping hours, but vulnerable communities shopping hours. So if you are somebody with a pre-existing mm-hmm. condition, you've got this protected, you know, couple of hours a week. And I thought that was a beautiful kind of provision. Yeah. It costs them nothing to do that, right? To take a couple of hours a mm-hmm. week and say, we're just going to make sure if you're here, you've got emphysema or some other kind of chronic low-lying condition that makes you vulnerable, here's a way to rearrange our services. So people are seeing now that acute crisis is always a moment to say, oh, what are the things that we thought were locked in place that were just locked in place because of the sheer inertia of the way things have always been? <laughs> you know, This mm-hmm. is the moment to mm-hmm. say, how do we pry open the, the seams and cracks of the world and, and see what else can be shifted around? So we'll see. I mean, for my own son, Cambridge Public Schools is doing a good job of trying to prioritize kids with disabilities because of the incremental supports that they need. So it'll be interesting to see how this school year goes, but I am cautiously optimistic at the moment and really grateful. Oh, that's great yeah. to hear. Yeah, and, and thank you for reminding me that, that you know, it's not that they're missing from my life. That's the important thing that often, yeah, like lots of people have been social distancing for a very long time. That's right. And now we're finally taking their thoughts and concerns and their ideas seriously. That's right. That's right. It's so often the case that we think, let's not forget and we forget where where native expertise resides. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was so helpful. I feel like what you've said really gives folks a way to think about disability in a much more thoughtful, personal, helpful way that they can actually grapple with and, and do some work on. And I think that's really to be appreciated. So thank you. I'm so glad. I mean, no one's more inspired than I am by folks who love and are are capable with technology and that malleability of the built world. So it is my great joy to find partnerships. And I know folks who are listening also like to create those situations. So it's great to be here. It's inspiring. Speaking for myself, I know there's a lot of learning and work to be done. So over at Processing, we're, we're excited to learn and do that work. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining Create Canvas. Once again, I'm your host, Cyber Khan. Create Canvas is produced by Processing Foundation and supported by Knight Foundation. Our editor is Devin Curry. Music by Lysha, who can be found at lysha.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Processing Foundation board and staff. You'll be able to find many of the things discussed here today in the show notes. And before you go, please visit processingfoundation.org. Check out the education portal for free and accessible education materials. Processing Foundation is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find this in future episodes on our Medium channel as well. 